812. And yes, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been lucky enough to pose your COVID-19 questions to Dr. Craig Janney. Of course, uh, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. And he has a, a, a foot-long um, business card that writes all that down. <laughs> He's, I, n- I never thought about that. You must have a, a difficult time with that. Uh, joining us uh, once again, Dr. Jenny, to answer those questions. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. And you know what? It's interesting if you have the questions, 403-974-8255, because things have morphed, things have changed, and we always have new questions coming in, Sue. And I'm sure many of them will have the word AstraZeneca in them, and so does this first one, Dr. Jenny. So we'll start there. I'm sure you're not surprised about that. Uh, This is from our own Tony King. Uh, Back in 2000, his wife had a a rare blood disorder called TTP. I can't say the name. You know I'm sure what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. She had a month of platelet transfusions, hasn't had any problems since, but with this clot risk that we're hearing about potential of with the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, for people with low platelet counts. Should she avoid that one? Wait for Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, or is it okay, do you think? Well, this is exactly what Health Canada is looking at at the moment. So we don't have a clear answer. What we do know is that there are a very small subset, and this isn't everybody with low platelet count, but a very small subset of pe- people. So we're still looking at about under 50 cases out of more than 20 million shots. So it's extremely rare, but it is a real link, and it's what we need to avoid. So these are the kind of questions you absolutely have to have with your healthcare provider. So that clarity will come as Health Canada reviews the the 20 million doses uh, that have been administered around the world, and we will have a very clear answer for that, hopefully in the in the coming weeks. The simplest will be yes, if you can uh, you know get one of the other shots in that particular case. But again, engage with your doctor. Your doctor is the best person to tell you whether mm-hmm. you you are. Uh, a candidate for one vaccine or the other and it goes beyond just the the platelets because we do know that there are allergies that would deter somebody from one shot and recommend a different shot and, and we have those tools to customize a vaccine that is best for your medical background and and to just be open and discuss that with your healthcare provider here's one that's more of a statement but i'm going to set it up with a question <laughs> here for you dr jenny my wife and i are going for our first shot today i say first shot as a supposed second shot is four months away in the next four months the experts may stretch that interval again i know the experts uh you know uh say take the first one offered but the track record has not been stellar i'm tired of experts telling me what to do and controlling my life over the last year so that's more of a statement so i'm wondering if you can address this dr jenny in the sense that it is organic, and this is something that is changing, and, and you folks have to be on top of it. Tell, talk about the challenges of being in your position over the past year. Yeah, it, it has been interesting. I think what has been um, impressive was how quickly people do move on data. So as data comes in, and this is because this is one of the first issues worldwide that data is being shared in real time. As we get any events, this is being shared globally with all partners. It allows us to take five years of evolution and compress it down into a couple months. And I think what people have to remember is that this is normal for most drugs, that they will come out. Uh, There will be improved recommendations as we go forward. If we look at any of the medications advertised on TV, particularly on U.S. cable news, the the list of, of potential side effects often takes long than the commercial yeah. and this is because we learn as they go and it doesn't mean a drug is not safe or a drug does not work but it probably works better in some people 
than others, and those are impossible to predict in clinical trials. Even if you had five years, ten years to do a clinical trial, we never enroll 20 million people in a trial. So we are using the real-world data to make things more safe than they really have ever been in the past. And I think we have to have some confidence in that Health Canada is making those real-time decisions and improving recommendations as we go forward. Great reminder. Thank you for that. Uh, Here's a question for you. If a person has had COVID recently, should they wait to get their vaccine? And uh, I've heard they might only need one dose. Is that true? So that recommendation is evolving. So the U.S. has now recommended a single dose for people that have recovered from the disease. As far as I know, Health Canada has not formally done that, but is actively addressing or actively determining whether that will be the recommendation going forward. Currently, if you've recovered from COVID, you are recommended to get vaccinated. And that is because we know people that have naturally fought it off are actually able to be reinfected. And we also know that memory, your immune memory developed from a natural infection, is less good at protecting against a different variant. It seems the vaccines have a little broader protection. So the recommendations right now are still to get vaccinated, but we do anticipate Health Canada in the coming weeks to recommend likely a single dose if you've already recovered from the infection. Dr. Janney, hoping you can uh, stick around for a couple more Mm -hmm. minutes after the commercial? Good stuff. More with Dr. Craig Jenny, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary, coming up in two minutes. It's the morning news with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, March 31st. We begin with another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Janney takes the time to answer coronavirus questions as sent in by you, the listener. As we continue to see an increase of vaccinations becoming more available, we hear details on new research that points to the importance of widespread inoculation to slow the increase in COVID-19 variants. We speak with an epidemiologist involved in the study. It's a new children's book which tackles the issues of loneliness and isolation during the pandemic. We meet author Linda Collier and hear her motivation behind writing, I Miss Your Smile. And finally, some call it the feel-good effect. Chocolate has been said to improve your mood in correlation to the quality of that chocolate. Ahead of the Easter long weekend, we have a sweet conversation with master chocolatier Bernard Calibo. We are back with... Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary with your COVID questions being answered. Uh, Doctor, we've got a few here, so let's rip through them, shall we? Here we go. Question number one for you. Will COVID be like SARS and just disappear? How do we know the UK or South African mutations didn't naturally appear in Canada as part of the life cycle of the virus? So two questions there. One, uh, will it disappear? Probably not. This is now fully endemic in the human population. And with so many asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic carriers, it becomes impossible to fully isolate this and get rid of it. So unfortunately, I think it's now going to be like common cold, uh, the flu. It is here to stay. How do we know variants haven't arisen? That's a great question. Uh, We do know variants have arisen in Canada. They just haven't been all that functionally different yet. So we do have to be careful. And I think that's why the terminology has also switch to reflect that the variants first identified in a certain location as opposed to confirming the variant is directly from that location. Mm-hmm. Another question surrounding variants, because I know we can't get enough of the variants. Oh my gosh, we're still talking about variants. Um, is it not reasonable, this is from a texter, not reasonable to, reasonable to assume that at some point we'll have a North American or even a Canadian variant? Yeah, absolutely. And the more cases we have, the more infections that occur, the more likely it is a new 
different functioning variant emerges. So even if we're not concerned about hospitalizations, which we are, uh, so vaccines come out, prevent hospitalization, we still want to get those cases down because the more this virus replicates, the more variants we will see. If a person has side effects from the shot, like a sore arm, dizziness, for example, does it mean their immune system is not responding favorably to the vaccine? Uh, Normally, it's the exact opposite. If you get soreness, redness, swelling at the site, that is your immune system. That is what the, the vaccine is supposed to do. Swelling is your active immune system, and that means it's angry and it's learning to remember that virus. So those are all you know, good things as long as they stay controlled. Again, any concerns, immediately contact your health care provider. They will be able to help you through it. We're always tight for time, and I've got to get one more. I've got to get one more in here because Tina just sent this one on the text line, and this is uh, you know the piece de resistance, and you have to look into the crystal ball for the doctor. What is his honest thoughts when it comes to uh, starting to function as a normal society again? Not necessarily what we were before this started, but where we can go to the gym or book a hair appointment without the fear that they'll be shut down on a moment's notice. Uh, you know, so for, for example, where we're not having to hear a daily press conference from Dr. Dina Henshaw, although we appreciate her words. So it's a tough one there, but can you, in your mind, from where we are with vaccines, where we are with cases, see, is it months? Are we talking about a year from now, Dr. Jenny? I think we are talking months. I think we're going to be near that by midsummer. I think once we, we, first of all, get vaccines offered to everybody who wants them, but critically, we need the majority of people to take a vaccine. Vaccines don't work unless they're in the arm of people. So even if they're available, we need the majority of Albertans to do it. Once we do that, viral spread will drop, hospitalizations will drop, and we will get back to what we want to do and then arguably need to get going on. Dr. Janney, before we let you go, you have to answer this one because I really just need you to please answer this last question that just rolled in. Uh, Does this vaccine, because this person insists that it does, does this vaccine alter your DNA? Uh, No, none of the vaccines uh, approved in Canada touch our DNA. So, yeah, none of them are gene editing, none of them are gene altering. uh, And as a result, there is no permanent changes to our genetic material from any of the vaccines approved in Canada. Thank you so much for that and all of your answers. Always love chatting with you. Appreciate your time. You guys take care. You too. That's Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 709 on Mornings with Sue and Andy right here on 770-CHQR. The People's Vaccine Alliance, a group of over 50 organizations, has warned that vaccines may only have one year of effectiveness. We're joined by Siham Rael, a vaccine policy lead at Oxfam, with the results of their survey on epidemiologists from 28 countries. Good morning to you, Siham. Morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us this morning. So this is interesting. I mean, it seems like every turn of a corner, we hear new things about the pandemic, new things about coronavirus and the vaccines. And now the prediction is uh, that you're uh, bringing forward here that the vaccines may be effective for, for not as long as we think. Is that right? Yeah, I think the the point uh, we're raising with uh, our new our new uh, data is to highlight that if we're not racing to vaccinate uh, as many people as possible now, uh, that this virus will continue to be with us much longer and potentially uh, mutate, and you'll see the emergence of even more variants. We've already got two. Uh, we've got the B one one. We've got the B one one seven and the B one three five one. Uh, and the, we know that these are highly infectious. We know that COVID-19, um, when it emerged, was a virus that was uh, killing people. And we have a solution. We have 
a number of vaccines and our best hope of getting rid of this virus and really ending it in its tracks is to ensure as many people are vaccinated as possible this year. So, Siham, we have been talking a bit about this of late, that this vaccine may become a a yearly thing, kind of like a flu shot, that that's probably the way it's going to roll out. So so are these findings that you've had from these epidemiologists from 28 countries, is this different or is this sort of, you know, backing that information up? I think it largely backs that information up. What our epidemiologists have emphasized is that in order to reach herd immunity, which is to ensure that as many many people that are vaccinated um, and that can get the vaccine safely can offer protection for uh, their wider community, um, is something that has to happen. That is something that needs to be seen as an urgent uh, public health crisis. I mean, the the head of the WHO has said that we should aim to vaccinate 70% 70% globally by the end of 2021. But our, at our current vaccination rates, uh, and for those vaccination rates from the COVAX facility, uh, it's only aiming to cover uh, about 20% of the global population. We have to remember that COVAX uh, develops and is sending vaccines to uh, the poor, poor countries who can't afford uh, vaccines at the current price that they're at. Wealthier nations are racing uh, to vaccinate every adult by this summer. Canada is no different. Mm-hmm. And, but we have to recognize that this virus impacts us all. We, we live in a globalized environment and we need global solidarity. And this is the urgency that many of the epidemiologists we surveyed are pointing to. So to a certain extent, uh, you don't want to put, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Dr. Rayo, but if we close the door on the vaccine in North America or in certain sections of Europe, that's fine. It still exists, uh, as we've learned, the, the proliferation of a, a, a different variant can come from anywhere if we're not taking care of all the countries on, on the globe. Absolutely. Uh, that, would, that would definitely be the point. But it also we recognize that, you know, we live in a, in a community, in a global community where um, one vaccinating healthcare workers, which has been a priority in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, is also a, should be a priority in Mozambique, in Pakistan and in uh, other countries. Healthcare workers are our front, frontline workers and our best hope of really managing this disease. Healthcare workers, the elderly, these are priority groups. They matter everywhere. So when we hear people criticizing, and don't get me wrong, there's often lots to criticize the federal government for, but when we hear the, the liberal government in this case being criticized for, you know, sending, paying for and sending some of these vaccines to other countries, this is actually an important thing for all of us, isn't it? Absolutely. And there shouldn't be, I mean, let's be clear, there shouldn't be any unused vaccines. Right. Mm -hmm. So we know that a lot of wealthier nations, particularly among the G7, have purchased more vaccines than their population than probably they need. In Canada, estimates have shown that uh, our government has purchased uh, five times the number of vaccines than um, our population needs. So there shouldn't be any unused vaccines. What we're urging and have always been urging at Oxfam Canada as a part of the People's Vaccine Alliance is to work with the World Health Organization through its different uh, mechanisms, including the COVAX facility, which allows for vaccines uh, to be subsidized and then available for low-income countries to make sure we're utilizing the COVID access to technology pool. So uh, vaccine technology uh, and and know-how can can be put there in order to mass manufacture vaccines and to give a fighting chance for low-income countries to produce their own vaccines. So there's a number of strategies that are already being uh, 
put forward by a number of advocacy organizations that recognize that we need a people's vaccine, not a profit vaccine. Of course, uh, you know, the organizations, 50 of them uh, surveyed, uh, you know, when you when you uh, get the results in, I'm wondering if there were any other um, takeaways, any other thing, any, any other thing stand out uh, from these organizations, uh, from the survey information to you? I think that one of the key things to recognize is that at the vaccine inequality is a huge uh, barrier to ensuring that we do reach global herd immunity. And at the current rate that we're vaccinating globally, many low-income and poor countries won't be able to complete mass vaccinations till 2024. What is that going to be doing to the health systems of many of these countries? What is that going to be doing to those that have already been impacted by, for example, ongoing conflict or other humanitarian crises? This uh, pandemic and this virus are compounding many of the issues that we already know exist uh, for low-income and poorer countries. Mm-hmm. So they- we really need to have global solidarity here to combat this virus. Yeah, it does. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you can't just look after one part of the world and, and watch things, you know, go out of control in another. So that makes perfect sense what you're saying. Thank you so much for your time this morning and, and sharing the information. Thank you. Appreciate it. That is Dr. Siham Rayel, who is a vaccine policy lead at Oxfam and also a women's rights policy specialist. That's the point I wanted to to, to get across uh, with the doctor is the fact that, yeah, so we do great. We vaccinate and we have 80% mm-hmm. here and we have that herd immunity. If, if there are smaller countries, people are traveling. And I think that that's yeah. the, the one of the number one takeaways is how interconnected we are. Uh, back when we were talking about the Spanish flu 100 years plus ago, it was wars that transported these. Now you can be across the world in hours. It's so true. And, and we're not going to, we know that we can't completely stop that. So, I mean, we have to take care of one another or more more restrictions in this whole passport idea that people are talking about. You know, and that gets very controversial, but, you know, until we are able to help vaccinate some of the poorer countries, that is likely what's going to happen. And maybe afterwards, too. I, I know some people don't like it. Some people are greatly in favor. If that's what you have to do in order for us to be able to move around again... Well, and I, I know we've talked a lot about summer festival season and Stampede. Yeah. I want to loop it back to there. Would you go to Stampede if you were required to have a passport that said, I've been vaccinated? 619, you've got little ones in your life, whether they're kids, grandkids, you know, it's always a gift when you can find a fantastic book that they will love, fall in love with, and you can share and read. Well, author Linda Collier has one that parents ought to consider because it is especially relevant during this pandemic. It's called I Miss Your Smile, and Linda is here to tell us all about it. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thank you for having me on your show. Love this. Great idea. You know, it's funny, Linda. I was out yesterday and there was a sign. I had to take my daughter to a place and there was a sign outside saying, uh, you know, someone in our in our store cannot wear a mask. So you will see somebody if you're not comfortable, don't come in. But I said to her, it was amazing to see somebody's face again. We yes. miss that. We miss <laughs> seeing a whole face and the mouth, especially when you smile. So I love that you've created this book to help kids deal with some of this stuff. Oh, thank you. I know they've had to learn to, everybody's had to learn to smile with their eyes. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about your book and sort of, you know, obviously we know the pandemic is the impetus behind it, but what else really sort of led you to this? Well, it started as an idea. Initially, I was going to keep a diary about the pandemic for my grandson just to show him, you know, down the road firsthand what it was really like. But the more I wrote, the more depressing it became. (laughs) So I thought I needed to find a more fun way of doing it. And one day I was visiting him 
you know, a few months into the pandemic. And he was drawing this picture and he showed it to me. And it was his, his mom flying to, she's a paramedic, flying through the air with a cape on and her arm out towards his version of what the virus was. And I said, what's this about? And he told me it was about his mom. And, and I said, how does that make you feel? And he said, well, it makes me scared for her. So I started thinking more and more about it and how so many kids have gone through so much with this. And we mm-hmm. sort of take for granted that they bounce back, but their whole lives changed. Yep. Not just us, all of them, everything, you know, their playgrounds, their friends, their sports. So I just started putting it together, asked a friend to do the illustrations, and that's sort of how it came together. Linda, let's talk about your experience writing. Have you always been a writer? Did you set out to be a children's author? Well, this is the first time I've ever shared anything. I've written for years, but I've never shared anything. It's mostly for myself, but because I have a grandson now, I write for him. So that's sort of how this whole thing got started. And you're raising money through the book as well? Yes, I am. So I have a nonprofit I started. Well, just I've been doing it for a few years. It's called Jammies from Grammys. And we raise um, you know, money to buy warm sleepwear for less fortunate children. I was doing it on my own for a couple of years. But I soon learned that you need to be a nonprofit to really get any sort of help. So by the time I was approved as a nonprofit, the pandemic hit. So we've had to come up with some really creative ways to try and raise money to help people out, kids out. So this book, whatever I happen to sell, will go towards um, getting this book out there to people and, and then going towards my jammies program. Good stuff. So you got a great cause behind it. You're mm-hmm. going to write and you want to, you know, this is something you're exploring yeah. for family. Where can we get the book and make that difference? Yeah. So right now it's on Amazon. You can get it as Amazon.com or Amazon.ca. And it's an ebook and a paperback book. Love it. And the website is jammiesfromgrammies.com. Fantastic. Can't wait to uh, get my hands on the books. I, I still love reading to my kids as much <laughs> as possible. Sometimes they don't want me to, but I think it's good for them and good for us as parents too, right? Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That's Linda Collier, who is the author of the children's book called I Miss Your Smile. 843, let's face it, Easter and chocolate are synonymous, well, at least in my world. So ahead of this long weekend, we figured to make it the perfect chat ahead of Easter, let's check in and talk to master chocolatier Bernard Calibo to see what he's offering up for this holiday. Good morning, Bernard. Good morning, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, your name is known throughout the world. Do you is it, are you challenged still to kind of come up with different versions of chocolate to, to intrigue us? Well, you know, when you're in the food business in general and you really are passionate what you're doing, you always want to come up with new ideas. You always want to experiment, and that's that's part of the business. And uh, I really enjoy that aspect. So. For me to come up with new ideas, that's uh, you know that's what I love to do. Let's talk Easter. Obviously, we have that theme of, of, of a bunny rabbit, uh, but then we, we brought chocolate into the mix. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, how did the chocolate eggs and the chocolate bunnies uh, come to be to celebrate? Well, the the egg is uh, like it goes back uh, a long time ago, uh, and it, it is definitely a religious background. It has been the symbol of rebirth and fertility, and uh, so the eggs has been uh, in history be part of that. And it's only around uh, 1850 that uh, 
chocolate came into the picture and uh, and it's more John Cadbury that in England that came up with the idea to do a chocolate egg and uh, so because egg was already popular uh, in that time period so the chocolate egg came on in the picture and has never gone away so it has been around for 160 years and we know science even has proven that there is a link between well-being and chocolate for example so it boosts our mood so what kind of things are you working on in terms of new designs whether it's for the chocolate itself or or for what that chocolate will end up looking like the shape of well the, the you know the, the for easter we we, we have uh, added like a lot of easter colors more pastel colors it's part of the you know of the uh, you know of the spring and uh, we use all natural colors from from vegetables and uh, from fruits and they really look uh, wonderful so uh, also we have a new collection of bunnies more contemporary type of bunnies and we added peanut butter little eggs so people love peanut butter so we added little peanut butter eggs I'm wondering, Bernard, is there some kind of a rule? Is is Easter ruled by milk chocolate, or can you move into a, a more of a dark chocolate? Does it matter? You know, in, in generally, uh, Easter is, uh, I would say, 70% milk, because, of course, it's a very children-oriented season, and uh, so uh, definitely it, it, it's a more a milk chocolate season. Bernard, I'm curious because in my world, I have never found this to be true. Is there anything that chocolate does not go well with? I haven't found it. No, After, nor have uh, I. I don't think it exists. <laughs> After 67 years, <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. Wow. I eat chocolate every day. Do you? Do you think that's the secret to longevity? Because that's what I believe. Well, my mother lived till she was 95 and she had every day a piece of chocolate that she dipped in her black coffee after lunch and uh, she has been a very healthy person most of her life you know my mom when i growing up she always said the best thing before your feet ever hit the floor is to have a piece of chocolate in your mouth wow. so i'm with you on that well i had already mine this morning <laughs> good for you i love it <laughs> oh good stuff and uh, bernard where can people get the product scattered throughout town well, we, uh, the, the main factory and the retail store is uh, just south of Chinook on 69th Avenue Southwest. And uh, we have a store in, in Mar de Loup and we are in the Calgary Farmer's Market. Everywhere. He's got you covered. Thank you so much and uh, happy holidays. Happy Easter. Well, thank you very much for having me. I very much appreciate that. Good stuff. You can uh, hop online to get more information as well. At- hop. Hop. Do you get it? I just I didn't even know. Really I'm a good, good egg when yep. it comes to the puns. <laughs> Master Chocolate. Dot com. You like that accent? Master Chocolate with no E dot com.